Hi friends, I'm Tanya Luna, psychology researcher and writer. And I'm Brian Luna, and I just discovered Tanya's such a badass that when she listens to Devil Went Down to Georgia, she prefers the devil's version over Johnny's. And you're listening to Talk Psych to Me, a show where we take research out of the lab and into the street. Let's get into it. I'm just telling y'all right now, as we go through, you might hear what sounds like a bunch of tiny people running down our roof above us, but that's not, that's just ice melting and it's going to be happening nonstop, like just now, right on yeah. cue. So if so you hear that, it'll be atmospheric. Yeah, yeah, it's going to go to with today's topic, which is something I don't know. Celebrating <laughs> Black History Month. Really? That's fantastic. Yeah. Why oh are you surprised God. that I decided to do something fantastic? Because well, it's usually like the psychology of. Well, okay. So I thought we'd do something a little different today right. from our usual episode format yeah. because it is Black History Month. I wanted to do kind of like a mini overview, a montage, if you would, of influential black American psychologists oh, and fantastic. their work. Awesome. I got to say. Nothing like, to do with the ice running off of our roof. Nothing I'm to sorry do. sorry those two don't go hand in hand, no. but we're going to try to make it work. Melting away. The racism, oh yeah, of warming people up, warming people up to the to, to connection absolutely. and diversity absolutely. and inclusion. Oh, I gotta I like say, that. I wonder if everyone feels the same thing. So when you said we're celebrating Black History Month, immediately my mind starts thinking like, oh my god, I hope I don't say anything inappropriate, or hope yeah. I don't say anything like. I love that you're bringing that up. We're going to talk about the psychology of that today because that phenomenon that you're bringing up was actually popularized by a black psychologist, one of my psychologist crushes, Claude Steele, who we're going to be talking about today. Dr. Steele? Yeah. Shit, yeah. Oh, that's, that's, see, it's not like a uh, pick and paw or whatever we, we talked about. Uh, pickles. Pitchell. Uh, that, that's <laughs> Tim like Pitchell. Tim Pitchell. I'm just Tim saying Pitchell. like Tim Pitchell's like, a, it's, it's a particular name, but Dr. Steele? Again, Tim Pitchell, if you're listening, you're probably not because of the abuses you've endured <laughs> from Brian, but uh, I'm so sorry. But anyway, yes, I do think that so many people are uncomfortable talking about race still in this country. But that's one of the reasons that I think it is so important to talk about, right? Because talking about blackness isn't a black topic. It's a human topic. Absolutely. That's the goal for today. Uh, This will be by no means an exhaustive list of researchers. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be... The ones that I want to talk about today. There you go. <laughs> so those were my decision criteria. <laughs> our show, our criteria. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So just for some context here, yep. how far back do you think the field of psychology goes? The uh, At least early 1800s. Oh, okay. Close. Late 1800s. But you still got the 1800s. I mean, I was in so there. Well, maybe maybe it started. they started talking early 1800s. They didn't start writing stuff down until <laughs> late 1800s. makes me think of something someone told me about. The Nanny was a show, a popular show in the 1900s. <laughs> Ouch. So, yeah, so psychology <laughs> but, did become a formal science in oh, formal 1879. Because I was going to say, we can even go back to like oh, philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Self, uh, well, you know, yeah, but we're going to go to Wilhelm Wundt in Germany, of course. who started the Institute for Experimental Psychology. Double V. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, double W. Double 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 double, 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 double dubs. Anyway, um, so what would your guess be? So, knowing the field of psychology. Uh-huh. Started in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds. Late eighteen hundreds. What would your guess be about the first black person who received a PhD in psychology? When was that? Also late eighteen hundreds. Uh, wrong. Okay. Wrong. Do you remember the whole early nineteen? Yeah, but I'm black. saying like maybe it's one of those trick questions where okay. you know surprise, surprise, like late eighteen hundreds, and then also. The, so the answer might surprise you. Actually, Francis Sumner was the first black man to get his PhD in psychology in nineteen twenty. 
Okay, so it's not that far. Not, I mean, not, late 1800s. It could have been like 1890s. It's a distance, but still. Yeah. Okay, then the first black woman to get her PhD in psychology, Inez Prosser, was in 1933. Okay. But if you think about it, in the U.S., graduate schools weren't even desegregated until the 1960s, with some universities taking as long as the late 1980s to yeah. finish their desegregation plan. And not to mention, there's still plenty of inequality and bias today. So even if you look at psychology textbooks, very rarely are black psychologists or researchers ever mentioned. Hmm. And yet, despite all of these obstacles, black psychologists and psychiatrists have contributed to a major amount of research and impact in the field, ranging from the broad, like psychiatrist Solomon Fuller made really important discoveries in the field of Alzheimer's. And Maxie Maltzberry Jr. actually helped popularize self-help as like a, a legitimate technique and wow. help make it go mainstream. So lack of representation in research. I was excited to talk to you about this today because you're always commenting on studies that I bring to you. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, well, they didn't study my people. Study, study in the suburbs. Come on, man. So your hypothesis is, if I understand correctly... <laughs> Uh, is that you can't just study white people and assume that this represents all people. 100%. And how do you identify, just for people to understand your perspective? Uh, well, Latino. I grew up Mexican-American. I grew up Me Mexicano. You know, that's that's how... That's and when how you we... see research, you feel like it's... I'm so, I'm like, we didn't answer the goddamn door for that. Like, we didn't... We, they didn't come to our house. Shit. Are you kidding me? Researchers coming to my old neighborhood? Like, shit. And I love that every time we talk about this, your idea of how researchers do research is they knock on doors. Yeah, they knock on doors. Like, hey, and they're like, hey, can we... That's how they used to come in. That's how... They used to say they were researchers coming, you know, collect. <laughs> I don't think those were researchers. They used to come to collect. Hey, we're um, here to research your film. <laughs> I'm here to research that TV you rented. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that it is some of these studies that I hear, I'm just like, wow, that's so foreign to me because that's not how anyone I would know would react. Yeah. Even I think about how like some of the things that you talk about with norms around even your mom yelling at you playfully, mm -hmm. if that was seen in a white context, people would be like, oh my gosh, that's abusive. Really? Yeah, yeah. Or I mean, like, <laughs> look... Where I grew up, like, it wasn't just your parents that could hit you. Like, any parents could hit you if, they, if you're, you know, messing around. Like, you know, like, uh, it takes a community, it takes a village. To beat up your children. To beat it, to whoop that ass. <laughs> it takes a village to, to straighten kids out, too. Like, I mean, and, and I know that looks bad. Like, now, obviously, I, I wouldn't hit a child um, with anyone looking, you know, but, uh, <laughs> oh but, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's. It's very different. I, I I don't think that there is a lot of representation when you read me a study. Because um, I also think of where I came from where in, in the city, growing up in San Antonio in the 80s, 70s and 80s, it was very segregated. Like you had a white part of town, you had a black part of town, yeah. and you had like two Mexican parts of town. And when I say Mexican, I don't mean like... Uh, from, from Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, that's just what, you know, how we were raised. Like you know, I, yeah, we we also had like Native American influence like together. It's like gelled together like yeah. Native American and Mexican. It's kind of like the same thing where I grew up. So, um when we were watching that show Reservation Dogs, which is a fantastic show on Hulu, I recommend. I was watching this. It takes place influences. on a reservation. Yeah, and I was like that's my that's our old that's our old thing. Like my my brother, my sister's Willie Jack, you know, like like <laughs> the whole thing. It's it's you know, so I mean, like I obviously I feel more comfortable when I see these shows because I feel like, oh yeah, now I can feel like you myself. Feel like I can feel represented. So, when, so in, when it comes to research, I feel the same way. Like I'd love to see research done. You know, you take these participants and they're all white and then the same study Latinos or black yeah. or, you know, and see, and see like what, what you come up with. It's yeah. The same. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is so important for the longest time in psychology, there was kind of like a, we don't see color 
approach to the way research was done. <laughs> Maybe that's because the only color they were looking at was white. <laughs> so basically, the, the classical perspective in psychology is like, all humans are the same, so why should we study them differently? But of course, not all human experiences are the not same. At all. And, you know, if you are white, so most psychologists are white and most research participants are white, so then that kind of perpetuates and creates this, this norm mm-hmm. that then if you're comparing anyone else of another culture or never, another set of experiences to that might seem abnormal yeah. because you're sort of perpetuating what normal is. So going back... Oh, yeah. Well, I have a question for you. Since you studying psychology, studying this research, how did you feel like you were represented? Because while you are technically white, you weren't raised white. Well, not here. white American. Yeah, that's what I mean. So like, how did you react to the research that you read? Did it ring true? Like, Honestly, oh, yeah. I never, I did not feel underrepresented. Okay. I, fe- I, I never thought about it. I read mm-hmm. research and I think I also, without thinking about it, took the colorblind perspective of like, oh, this is just about humans. Sure, sure. So really, I didn't even start thinking about it until I started recruiting participants for research I was conducting. Mm-hmm. And for example, a lot of the research I started off doing just because of where I went to school was on the Upper West Side, uh, Upper East Side in Manhattan, which was predominantly white. Yeah. And we were studying at the time emotion regulation in kids. And I was like, wait, not only is there homogeny in race, but also class and mm. religion and culture and things like that. And I was like, mm, this feels a little off. Yeah. Um, Man, I don't my think mom I would never take leap. me to a study. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we paid good money. Well, that was what to say. Maybe if there was some cheddar on the side, but like. Which felt never. really bad because when you pay people, you're because I used to like make kids cry. You know? <laughs> so I'd be like, "Can I pay you fifty bucks to make your child cry?" But anyway, yeah. So, but I don't think I transferred that insight over to myself feeling underrepresented okay. in the research. So, going back to the topic of Black psychology, obviously, not all humans face the unique hardships of Black Americans or share mm-hmm. the unique benefits of Black culture and strengths of Black culture. So that's especially the kind of research that I wanted to dig into all today. Right. I'll focus on research that has has had a positive impact on black people and by extension, also anyone that's been marginalized. But also I would say by extension, black research benefits all human beings because as human beings, we can't thrive unless all of us are thriving. Mm -hmm. So I think this is just incredibly important research for all of us to be aware of. Awesome. So I'm going to kick off with two of the most famous black psychologists, I would say, who made a massive impact through their work, Mamie Clark and Kenneth Clark. Not twins, actually a married couple, in case you were going to ask me that. I was going to ask. That was my next thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Now that that's out of the way. So may I attempt to recreate like a tiny version of the experiment? I love like Right now, these experiments have been like, (laughs) I have not had, I've not been hurt. I've not been in it. You've threatened me with like burning acid on my wrist. I've tried to emotionally hurt you, but you're so resilient. I'm so resilient. I'm I'm, I'm like, yeah. All right. And look, we're making up for all that time that you and your people were not (laughs) I am here making up for last time. Okay. Uh-ho. So obviously this is a very poor recreation. You are, uh, this was originally conducted in 1947 with black kids. Okay. You are none of those things. And I'm not, we are from not, not in those not times. Child. However, let's just see what happens. So okay. I'm going to show you an image okay. of two dolls. Do I have to look at the image or describe it without looking? <laughs> I want you to listen to is the image. Is this like some paranormal thing? No. I see three stars. Stop making some this wavy lines. topic. A different topic. Uh, I okay. see a circle with this. <laughs> okay, ready? Okay, so can you, since this is an audio uh, medium, can you describe the two dolls that you're looking at? Yeah, I'm looking at um, two heads from the shoulder up. Don't make, they're not, you're making it sound like it's just doll heads. No, I, I'm describing, you didn't let me finish. Okay. All right, so from the shoulders up. Yeah. 
on the left, you got a blonde one with white skin and blue eyes. They both have the same expression. Uh, and then on the right side, this one has black hair, complexion like mine. Which is? Brown eyes. Uh, like, you know, um, brown, like light brown. Mm-hmm. Both have gaps in their teeth. Um, <laughs> both have the same nose, which is weird. So I think this research is kind of whack already. Mm-hmm. So looking at these two dolls, mm-hmm. uh, which doll is the nice one? The nice one? Yeah. Well, the one on the left is looking in my eyes, so I don't like that. That the so the, the white eyes, one yeah. is looking right at the camera, and the the brown one seems to be looking uh, off camera. So I would say the brown one is not giving you direct eye contact. So that's the nice one. I think so. Okay, and then which doll is the bad one? Man, I'm telling you, the eye contact really freaks me out. So I'm going <laughs> to say the one on the left, the blonde one, is the is the one that looks like some bad intentions. The, with that the metal doll. detector would go off on this kid as well. Okay, and which one is the one that looks more like you? The one on the right. Yeah. The, the nice, the yeah. nice good one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, <laughs> well, I mean, thank you. Because that, that one literally looks like me. I know. I, found, I, try, I tried to find a doll that looks as much like you as possible. <laughs> because that's a, that's a misleading question. Am I supposed to be like, oh, the good one always looks like me? This was just an experiment. Thank you for participating. I'll post an image on Instagram for those who are curious to see the doll that looks like Brian. Um, and, and I've always said that you are a doll. Oh. Um, so what do you think the Clarks found when they did this experiment? They used white dolls and black dolls. Identical dolls with just different skin oh, color. Oh, you're showing kids. And young kid, young black kids ages three to seven Don't in the tell 1940s, me they thought the white one was the good one. They found that, that right? from a super early age, the more than half of the kids, so the majority of the kids, they picked the white ones as the good ones or the nice ones and the black ones as the bad ones. I would have said the same thing. You know why? Okay, this is going to sound so stupid. So growing up, there's a movie called Bad Boys with Sean Penn and Isai Morales, right? And it's about these two young punks in Chicago. And they're both pieces of shit. Like, they're both, like, gangbanger, like, really terrible individuals. And they both do two terrible things. But Sean Penn does it first. Sean Penn... And he's the white one. Yeah. Sean Penn is a white guy, kills... Uh, no spoilers, it happens in the first ten minutes. Uh, accidentally kills his brother. Oh, wow. And gets sent to reformatory. That's like a juvie. That, that's what the movie's about. And he's the hero of this. And wow. then, so Isai Morales tries to get back at him by by beating up his girlfriend. And that's a um, black actor. And he, he's uh, Mexicano. So then he, but he's the villain. So growing up, that's, so I think it's what you see. And back then, I'm, I'm in the 40s, I'm assuming there oh, wasn't yeah. a lot of like hero on TV and, and movies or on radio, yeah. hero black stars or something. Well, and then one of the most heartbreaking aspects of this is that not only did these kids say the white one is the good one yeah. and the black one is the bad one, then when they asked, okay, so which doll looks more like you? Oh, gosh. One of the reasons they recognized that it was this kind of internalized racism is that it made a lot of kids cry. Yeah. Like it made, it them... made me choke up just say, just hearing it. Just hearing a kid have to say, oh, yeah, that's the bad one, that's the bad one, and then, oh, yeah, that's me. That one's me. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, yeah. So th- one of the things that's amazing about this research is that it's believed that it played a role in the 1954 Brown versus Board of Ed decision to end racial segregation in schools. Hmm. It was actually noted as one of the sort of pieces of evidence. And the reasoning was that the belief was that perpetuating segregation could perpetuate these negative self views that are so deeply internalized at such a young age so if we repeated this research today what do you think we'd find oh geez i'm hoping i don't know i mean you're asking me what i'm hoping what i think we would find i mean we're all hoping the same thing what do you think i i I think 
is what I hope, right? I think we would see what I just said and like we would start looking less at good, bad, white, black and start seeing like recognizing faces, recognizing... uh, Focus on the gaps in the teeth. Gaps in the teeth, but potential dangers, right? Like what we see on TV, you know, like Mm -hmm. this kid is dressed like... In camouflage, blonde hair, direct eye contact. Oh, that's interesting. It yeah. looked like, for me, something you'd see at the end of a tragedy. You know, mm-hmm. like looking in the camera. Uh, the the the. But that's still a form of bias, right? Like we're still internalizing. Totally, totally. But at least the images it, that we're. But fed. what we're seeing, I mean, I I think what what I'm saying is is that we're less likely to make those judgments because we have more information because yeah. we have more uh, to look at. So this this study, it's often called the doll test or the doll study. It has been repeated many times. Uh, one of the more recent times was in 2017. Researchers Diane Bird and team found that black kids prefer the dark skinned dolls. Mm. And they said they were the nicer ones and the prettier ones. Oh, nice. Yeah, there but you go. But the, the one kind of downside to this is they also <laughs> said the darkest skinned dolls, because it's not just racism, it's oh, yeah. also colorism, right? Yeah, like dark yeah. skin, darkest skinned dolls. They still said that they look like the mean dolls. In in our culture, same thing. Like uh, if my culture, you're darker skinned, you get teased for that. Yeah. Like you get, there's nicknames you get, like common nicknames that every group has. Well, one of the things that researchers even found is that even dark-skinned black kids, when they were asked, which of these dolls do you identify with, would often pick the lighter-skinned black dolls. Hmm. Oh, so wow. Even recently. But it, yeah, I mean, we go we go back to the same, like even um, what I think I've talked about it before on the podcast about my hair, how my hair isn't like the hair of my family and yeah. all of my family. So I would get teased about that constantly because uh, of the yeah. the thing so when people ask me why do i wear my hair short or or why have i never let my hair go out or whatever yeah. it's like well because i'm ashamed of it and it you know, stayed with I'm, you for over 40 years i mean i still i'm only now growing out my hair for the first time in yeah. my life so yeah. chris chris rock did this documentary called good hair and it's the same thing, like, you know, black women in, in, in beauty shops and how they feel about their hair, like how they, the kind of hair they see is good. Or so the kind there of was actually another study done just last year by Tony Strudevant and Ileana Alanis, mm-hmm. and they did a version of the doll test with young black girls. They didn't ask them any questions. They just gave them dolls with different mm-hmm. skin tones and different hair types, and they just observed what they did. Oh. And they found that these girls actually were least likely to play with the black dolls and more likely to say negative things about their hair, least likely yeah. to like even do like t- try to style their hair. Mm-hmm. And they even said things like they were more likely to step on the dolls or step over the dolls. Mm. And that was last year, 2021. Yeah. So obviously we still have a, a very, very long way to go. And I'm curious, you know, you've dealt with this at least to some extent, like mm-hmm. even in the hair store that you were just talking about, like what are some of the things that you think could work in releasing some of that very deeply ingrained association? I think, I think laughing at it. I think putting those kind of, that's why I was saying like my ideal sitcom would deal with things like this, you know, instead of dealing with who said, she said, oh no, someone's coming. We haven't made dinner kind of bullshit. It like really addressing <laughs> was those. That, were you dissing Frasier? <laughs> no, I'm dissing Frasier, Full House, all that stuff, you know, because it's like there, there are real things that you could actually laugh at and normalize it. But I think if we can learn to laugh at it and take it with um at least smile about it then we can at least feel good about it or we can kind of like building conversational capacity like if we can't even talk about it then it always sits then it's gonna nothing's gonna change yeah yeah Yeah. and and i i also think like 
Okay, so this is this is one of the things I like about TikTok. This is one of those things. Cause I think TikTok is is weird because it makes weird celebrities. It makes you know what I mean. Like it makes, but there are some things where people are just like, I don't care. This is me. This is how I take care of me. Yeah. And some of that stuff is very body positive. This is my hair. This is how I do this. This is yeah. my skin. This is how I take care of my skin. Because you know you see these skin commercials with these products, and you're like, oh, that's great. And I put it on, and my my oh, face yeah. feels like a I mean, waterbed. What? You know, you a used waterbed. Water yeah. Like a used waterbed, like a slept-in waterbed. I'm gonna have to test that out later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but but you know what I mean, like yeah. so. Like, or the images of beauty in magazines still. I feel like that's changing little by little. Sure, but sure. even like who's chosen most beautiful of the year or yeah. most handsome of the year or whatever. So yeah, using tools like TikTok or social media or just if you're a role model to anyone at all. Mm-hmm. And you have the opportunity to like represent these things that have things that have had negative associations or shame around them, yeah. creating those positive moments for people. And can I be think so that's powerful. What, yeah, I think that's what we did also with uh, with our last Rodriguez about like our web series. Yeah, the web series that we did were we it was like being on the outside of a culture, you know, looking in, like not feeling part of that culture, not feeling part of this culture, yeah. kind of being in the middle there somewhere. Like starting to tell more of those stories. Yeah, yeah, and recognizing the the humor in that, you know, hopefully or something. Yeah. So I mean, I think mostly the the solution here isn't so much like what can people do to get rid of their own internalized racism it's more like what can we do to put more positive images out there more complex images out there okay so we talked about some really important research that pushed our society further toward social integration racial integration which is obviously at least i think obviously wonderful but it's also really complex because as far back as Inez Prosser, who was that first black woman I mentioned who got her PhD in psychology, mm-hmm. she and others saw evidence that black kids who went to integrated schools actually experienced more social anxiety, oh, felt less imagine. secure, and had more difficulties learning. Mm-hmm. And she actually found that black students did best when they were around black teachers and other mm-hmm. black students. And even though the Clarks, who were the doll study you know, researchers, even though they argued for integration and it had such a huge impact on integration... In their own research, they found that kids from integrated schools internalized more anti-black messages and associations. Yeah. I mean, imagine going to school every day, every second with a target on your back. Right. Not just from the kids, but from the teachers. Uh, Yeah. I can't imagine, you know, whenever I see those old videos, I mean, the old uh, footage of the black kids being let in, in Georgia, Alabama, we don't give that enough credit yeah. like i mean here we, we we popularize and we you know we put people on stamps and yet no one can name the the, the first six kids to get off that bus yeah and it, and, it, and it breaks my heart because like we don't give that enough yeah and then the, like, and then internalizing that and then needing to live with that with your own family and your own yeah, kids and that yeah. was so recently so so that's one of the the challenges like you mentioned growing up in a pretty segregated area and mm-hmm. i would say the u.s it seems schools are increasingly segregated. Some of that is structural, but some of that is also by choice because yeah. you can feel safer with a group where you feel like you're you're not in the minority. Yeah. So the str- that stress that creeps up when you are in the minority. I mentioned Claude Steele before. This is where his research, I think, is so, so important. So he's a modern day black psychologist, and he dubbed this feeling of extreme pressure and stress that happens when you 
or expecting someone to have a negative judgment around you. Mm. He called it stereotype threat. Yeah. He wrote a really wonderful book summarizing his research called Whistling Vivaldi. And it comes from a habit that his black friend told him about uh, where he would literally whistle Vivaldi <laughs> as he would walk down the street so that the white people don't didn't freak out as much. Oh, man, that's great. Can, can you yeah. talk about your own behavior, whether because of your race or your size or your gender or anything else to like... Yeah. I mean, look, if you're we, anticipating someone holds a stereotype about We all you. have a white voice that we do. Is this so, your white voice? No, this is my normal voice. But like, I, I you know, like my white voice, probably a little higher and, and you know, less threatening, you know, yeah. but but you, you try to do that as far from as far away as possible. So as you get closer, they feel oh, safer, wow. you know, so like uh, that kind of so thing. You're like, hello, how do you do? Yes. You know, distance. something like that, oh. or especially on the phone or, or in an interview or something like that. Like when I first, when we first moved here you know, to this, to this town. And you live that in we sort lived. of like a rural, yeah. small town. Now, we're we we're on the, um, I, I think our house is the Mexican neighborhood. So, <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, we, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's diverse, to, but not everywhere. Like at the grocery store, it's not really. So I would really have to go out of my way to not lose my temper or, or mm. not show any kind of aggression or something because like that. Because you're worried that you'll be yeah. pegged as like. Yeah, yeah passionate latino yeah yeah so so Steele found that people under stereotype threat some of the things that we do when we experience it is we try to distance ourselves from any expected association so Mm. kind of like you said right so you change your emotions you change your voice physicality too you change your walk change your yeah your the way i stand you can Um, even change a lot of times in the research people will change who they the music they say they like or (laughs) you know the sports that they're interested in Um, stress levels go up people become more socially withdrawn and performance suffers Hmm. so for example when taking standardized tests black people tend to perform worse when they have to identify their race first women tend to do worse on math tests when they have to bubble in their gender first and white people do worse in track and jumping when they have to identify that they're white it's it's really weird. I never understood that with uh, standardized tests because you know Texas is. Uh, I went to public school, so we would take the same kind of standardized tests. Like I think once every two years or something like that. It was always well, that the was same because you kept getting left back. No, 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 no. I hey, I never. Only one of us here got left back. <laughs> well, I don't know why. Only one of us here. Only me. one of us here didn't make the grade. Because <laughs> I did know. take the same standardized <laughs> test twice, but that's anyway. Um, so, um, <laughs> you know. I always wondered why we had to, if it was like, because they, they, the way they explained it, they're like, this is to let us know how our students yeah. are doing, but we always had to separate ourselves at the beginning of that test. Which is messed up. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Asking for that kind of demographic information, maybe at the end makes sense because you want to make sure, hey, you know, averages can hide a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But again, just the salience, the thinking about this identity you have, if it comes with negative associations, it deeply impacts performance. Here's what's super important about his research. He found that stereotype threat is a major contributor to ongoing race performance gaps Mm -hmm. in schools, which pretty much disappear when you don't make race that salient, when Mm -hmm. you don't make it so high pressure. So as Steele puts it, black kids experience stereotype threat. They're not just taking a test or answering a question in class. They're also multitasking because they're trying to take that test, answer a question and anticipating and fighting off people's perceptions. Steel calls it slaying ghosts. So it's like so much of your energy goes to just that, you know? And over the lifespan, some people believe it can even cause physical illness, like hypertension and heart disease, because you're constantly carrying around that stress. And this is not in the 40s. This is today. Stereotype threat is most draining for people who are in the minority. But you mentioned right in the beginning of this episode, you know, so many people 
like Black History Month, people who aren't Black can feel a lot of anxiety talking about Blackness or the Black experience or Black research or whatever because you're like, oh shit, am I going to say something wrong? Am I going to be racist? That's also stereotype threat. Hmm. And a lot of times you'll see this among people who aren't Black actually separating themselves from black people because they're like i don't want to say the wrong thing i don't want to be judged poorly i'm i'm just not gonna i'm just not gonna participate i'm just yeah. not gonna play in the sandbox yeah yeah, yeah. that's and it's like yeah. a form of what's also called protective hesitation but then it just perpetuates segregation so brian luna yes what are things we can do to reduce stereotype threat for ourselves and others Wow. <laughs> stop freaking asking people their identifiers I, in the well, beginning of that the and, and then stop asking permission Free yourself. Like, just try it for a day. For a day, go out and say, I'm not going to hold, you know, any door open. Like, for a while, I was old. Oh, yeah. Man, I was the patron saint of doors. <laughs> oh, my um, God. When I, when I yes. first got to Manhattan, I was like, yes, they, people thought I worked at the goddamn buildings, right? And it, and it, oh, my gosh. This is so interesting because I always thought of that as like a Southern thing. And I'm sure part of it is Southern. Yeah, part, part of, of it is Southern. Yeah, absolutely. Very polite. But I think over time, you started to build up so much resentment, especially when you would hold the door and just like, 40 white people yeah, just yeah. through nine. And, and they would also you. do like the Indiana Jones thing where as it was closing, they would squeeze in, you know, as if like, <laughs> hey, man, like just, you know, or squeeze in front of someone to get it. Like, what is going on? My like, favorite thing is when you were transitioning to not holding doors for everyone <laughs> and you would give people a chance. So you'd hold the door open for them and they wa- would walk through. And if it was a white person, they didn't acknowledge you. You'd be like, well, fuck you then. <laughs> So please, people, if Brian holds the door open for you, just say thank you. And or honestly, just, or just a head door, nod. I just a like, like a boom right there. A, a like, head can hey, go up, man. a head can go down. I can go get your goddamn umbrella. You know what I mean? Like I can... But I love that. So for yourself, you've been working on figuring out what what can it look like to not have to play in. Yeah, yeah. To, to just be, other to just be myself. To, to, to go with my first reaction, whatever that is, and try not to quell it. If it's anger, if someone says something to me and I get angry, normally I'd play it off and I'd be like, mm, you know, hi, how are you? Whatever. Now I'm like, what was that? What, is that why you know? all our neighbors look so much more nervous? No, no, no. But like I told you, the in- the instance I had recently in the in the grocery store, and it was like it stayed with me because yeah. I felt bad. I felt guilty after I, I felt you snapped at someone because I didn't snap. I, I just didn't. I didn't, I didn't let it slide. Yeah, yeah. Not snapped. I don't mean snap like you lost See, it. See, you give me that. See, <laughs> yo, don't stare. Come I on, man. Snipped, like snippy. You got snippy. I didn't get snippy. Okay. You justifiably. <laughs> I got real. Uh, no, you got no, justifiably no. real. <laughs> no, I just I just reacted the way yeah. anybody else would have reacted. I'm saying like uh, if that was two white people talking and the other person would have been like, excuse me, what, what was yeah. that? Especially if you can stand up for yourself in a way that just speaks to like. Hey, that's not okay. Yeah. Or so I would how say, yeah. Feel. So I would say, like, give yourself a day to not apologize or not do anything. I'm not cool. saying go out and start fights, punch people in the face randomly, preemptively. Like that's what you're saying. It's not going to hurt. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. But like, just make your uh, what is this um, around me? You're miming like a box. Make no, your box. like your not your make parameter. Your make your make boundaries. Your circle. Make okay. your boundaries known. Make your boundaries yeah. evident and, yeah. and stand by those. You know, and whatever. especially like you know, I, I love that you're saying that. Not everyone's going to feel safe doing that because maybe not everyone has the communities where that's safe to do or the mm-hmm. workplace where that's safe to do but trying to find that place where that's as safe as possible sure. and just seeing what it's like to not have to again like kind of buy into what other people are wanting or expecting yeah. of you yeah look i still have that weird thing of the police showing up and then 
I can't explain my side yeah. and I'm calling you. You're kind of always waiting for the police to show Yeah. Up. And then you're, I'm going to have to explain to you bail because you're asking too many questions and I'm just going to be like, just get me out. But like my point is. Hey, I've is bailed that, people out. <laughs> yeah, we have both of us. Uh, but I, I guess what I mean is, is like, I still have that feeling of if I do stand up, I'm going to be the bad yeah. guy. I'm going to be seen as the bad guy. Not like I'm going to feel bad, but like there's going to be. Real consequences. Real consequences. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really important to acknowledge. I also have a weird thing about if people think I'm following them. That used to happen to me in Manhattan all the time. But even now when I'm driving, I've had cars slow down and let me pass them. You know, not that I don't, I don't tailgate by any means. You know that I ain't that kind of driver. But even when I was walking, like people would look back and, yeah. you know, I would like, I would mistakenly be like, hey, you know, like if they gave me eye contact, I'd be like, hey, That's you know, sweet. but but then all of a sudden they're like looking over but the shoulder. But you shouldn't have to do that. But the next thing you know, I'm in a Chris Nolan movie and oh, I'm the villain. You know what I mean? Like they're like, dun, 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 dun. and I was like, no, no, I'm, you're just, trying to be I'm also friendly. going to Dwayne Reed, you know, like, like I got to get jelly beans yeah. or whatever. Well, so that's stereotype, right? It's like someone else could be walking down the street, just walking down the street. You're walking down the street, also slaying this ghost of, you know, making people yeah. not think you're following them. So another legendary modern black psychologist, Beverly Daniel, she addresses this challenge of stereotype threat in her famous book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Mm. And she points out that many people see self-segregation and judge people for it, but it's actually, in many ways, it's, it gives you, like we talked about before, you know, safety, connection, empathy. Um, she calls it self-affirmation behavior. Mm. So one buffer against stereotype threat is to Yes, build diversity into your community, but also creating spaces where you don't feel like you're in the minority. Yeah. Whether that's for yourself or in your organizations, creating spaces where people can put down the weight of feeling like they have to fight against a stereotype yeah. that people hold. Going back to the idea of self-affirmation, Claude Steele also notes that self-affirmations and affirming others can be very powerful as a way to be kind of like an antidote against stereotype threat. So, for example... An affirmation can be broad, like, hey, I believe in you, or I know that you can do this. Literally just showing your faith yeah. in a person can be so powerful. Or you can use a hack called stereotype lift, which is a little bit cheating, but whatever. So this is the tendency for us to live up to positive stereotypes. So for example, when Asian girls are taking math tests and they have to bubble in that they're a girl, they do worse. When they have to bubble in that they're Asian because of the stereotype yeah. around Asians being good at math, yeah. they actually do better. Wow. So you can kind of hack it by actually connecting to another identity you hold and reminding yourself that that identity comes with these really positive associations. Hmm. Can you think of an example of that? No. Oh, so maybe instead of being a race, nationality, or gender, you could be an occupation. Oh, yeah. Or you could be like a... I'm stronger than average. I'm, oh, you know, totally. or, or, you know, I'm a Or even just things like I'm a, I'm a good person, yeah. you know, or I'm from Texas or, you know. That has actually helped me. I'm Texan. I'm Texan, yeah. right? Claude Steele also found that connecting to role models you can identify with, just mm. thinking of those role models can be really powerful. And I think the fascinating finding here is that our identities are fluid. They're not fixed. So you can kind of play with your own identity perception and lean on the aspects of your identity that have those positive associations or that you have positive associations around to kind of lift yourself out of that stress. And finally, Claude Steele points out that you can reduce stereotype threat for others by doing what you can to just increase diversity of all forms, because that stereotype threat especially is 
painful when you walk in and you're like scanning the room and you notice that you're in the minority. Mm -hmm. And so immediately, instead of thinking of yourself as a person, you're thinking of yourself as this kind of stereotype in Mm -hmm. other people's eyes. So doing what we can to make it more likely that people of all different identities want to be in our friend groups and our companies and our classrooms or whatever it is. And then if nothing else, at least reiterating why you value diversity and why you love difference versus being like, we're all the same, you know, being able to say, hey, we're all this team, we're all this school, we're all this company. And also the differences that people have here are one of the things that make us so strong. Okay, so we talked about several important concepts so far that were catalyzed by black psychologists in the US. Another concept that I want to briefly touch on, this is one that black researchers helped take mainstream. And it's the idea of implicit bias. How would you define implicit or unconscious bias? Unconscious bias. I guess that's like bringing to the table what you think you know about a person. Bringing that to the table every time you meet someone, you're like, oh yeah, I know I know what this person, I know, I see this person, I've seen this person before, I know exactly who this is. Yes, this and is the that. unconscious piece is that we don't even know we're doing it. Oh, right, right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess I should say that that's already embedded. So, right. yeah. But but that's the thing. Like so many people think about bias as stereotype, as prejudice. I look at you and I'm like, ah, I know what you Texan Mexicans are yeah, like. Yeah, I already right? know what you think. Yeah. yeah. Unconscious bias is when... I see you and my body just tenses up and I don't even realize why. (laughs) Or I hear your voice and my body relaxes and I don't even notice that, right? Most of us don't even pay attention to our bodies. Our bodies are just sort of like these things that carry our big brains around. But actually, that's where so much of this implicit bias lives. The term implicit bias was coined not by black researchers, by researchers Majarin Banji and Anthony Greenwald. But racial bias research has been conducted by black psychologists as far back as Francis Sumner, who was the first person to get his black person yep. to get his PhD in in the 1920s, Mamie Clark, best known for the doll test, yep. found that black children were more likely to be misdiagnosed with having a learning disability because of assumptions around what normal communication and behavior look like, because those are all based on white culture. But the hmm. thing is, of course, there's white culture, but people don't think of it as a yeah. thing. They just think of it as normal. Similarly, a lot more recently, psychologist Hope Landron found that race, gender, and class biases led to incorrect psychiatric diagnoses, which perpetuate existing social inequities. Modern-day psychologist Jennifer Ebenhart found that race bias or associations led to more police violence and harsher criminal sentencing for Mm. Black people and people of color. Uh, And the famous Black researcher Robert Lee Williams II found that intelligence At the time, intelligence tests were showing that black people were performing worse than white people. And he was like, that just cannot be the case. So what he did was he created an assessment that used experiences, like basically examples Mm -hmm. and language that were more familiar to black people. Hmm. And he found that black people actually performed better than white people on those assessments. Uh Because you take an assessment and someone white is creating it and they're like, well, this is how everyone thinks. It's not conscious. You're not trying to set people up for failure. But how was that um, retesting seen? What that did was it shone a light on the fact that the people who are creating these standardized tests, you need to have a lot of diversity in the people who are examining the quality of that test because it could just be that those biases sink in to the test design itself. Yeah. So awareness around this is good, but it doesn't really remove our biases. It's not like I can tell you, hey, you have this anti-black bias or anti-Muslim bias or whatever. You can become aware of it through implicit association tests, but that doesn't actually make it go away. It takes a lot of work to see that unconscious bias. Like we saw that a lot in the last two elections with politicians on both sides with this unconscious bias. I remember recently a pretty well-known politician, I won't won't say their name here, said, 
there's a difference between how Americans vote and African Americans. Wow. And and you're like, and th- and then this person was like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. And you're no. like, no, no. But I was like, well, that's exactly oh, that what like you meant. Me. No, no, totally. Americans and African Americans. Yeah. Seeing that, no one wants to know that about themselves. No one wants to see that. Yeah. I, you know, I got to say, growing up, we were very racially segregated. Like I said, I grew up with not knowing I was a racist. I didn't know because this was kind of like an everyday thing. Our coaches and teachers would say things to prep us for these oh, games. and that was not unconscious. That was yeah, very conscious. Yeah, it's very conscious. But like for us, as I got older, I was like, holy shit, when I got here in New York, I was like, oh my God, like this is this is in me right now, right? Yeah. And you know, I think what you're saying is so important because at the end of the day, these associations, whether it's racism, homophobia, sexism, things like yeah. that, but especially focusing on racism today for this topic, it's something that if we don't acknowledge that we have it and mm-hmm. so many of us internalize it, you experienced it very explicitly because of your coaches and the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. But anyone, even li- living in the most supposedly like liberal area, internalizes these negative messages. And the reason that people are so resistant to this conversation is they go, oh, that's not me. I'm not racist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it racist was... doesn't mean that you're screaming you're in a white hood burning crosses i mean there's 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 many levels and and i don't want to say that all of my coaches were like this i'm not a you know i i please i don't want that going out there no but it was normal i had yeah i had a handful of people in authority coaches letting us know their opinions and you know the school i went to robert e lee high school you know and we had the confederate flag on our uniforms until oh, I was a sophomore, who, who a junior. Your uh, your cheerleaders were called. Oh, <laughs> they were the Confederates, oh, the Dixie Drillers, the Rebel Rousers. Yeah, uh, those were the, the so dance teams. This is like teams. the water that everybody was drinking without even. Yeah, questioning. and I mean, even now, like I, I look, you know, uh, there's still a lot of controversy around the the Confederate flag uh, in recent years, and some of the people I went to high school with were still defending it. We're still yeah. defending the the name uh, of the high school and and everything else and and I'm like you know I never played for that school thinking like man I hope Robert E Lee is for proud Robert of me I I hope no it was like it was for my team it was for my 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 friends my brothers my my you know the, the guys that I I would have died for they changed the name of my school to Lee but Lee is now an acronym. It's like uh, legacy. Leadership, of... excellence, something. No, but they um, kept the word legacy, which legacy, I think a lot of people was, still take issue yeah, with. Yeah, but, but I mean, we, we got rid of the Confederate flag, which is, but they kept, at one point, they still kept the Confederate soldier as our as our mascot. Oh my gosh. It's almost like, a, like you're like, hey, put away the Confederate flags. And you're like, okay, put them all away. But, oh, but really? Was, but How it, about your little soldier? But oh, here's yeah, was, fine. I'll put away my little soldier. Exactly. I'll put away my little soldier. But what about the hat? Can I still wear the hat? <laughs> so it, it was fascinating about that. I, we were juniors in high school and the year, the uh, towards the end of the year, they made an announcement that the Confederate flag was going away. It brought so much att- national attention yeah. um, that we were getting death threats, that they were going to come blow up our school. They were going to shoot up our school. And it was so funny that... That That does sound funny. No, no, no. But what was was funny, peculiar, I should say, was that there were people that my parents, my friend's parents and stuff, some of them were were like fanatical about this. We didn't care. Not everyone, like, I didn't care. I mean, like, again, I was still playing next year at my senior year and we're going to get brand new uniforms. So I was like, that's pretty badass. Do you think that part of it might have to do with, like, part of it is tradition and the things that, you know, the positive associations people built up. But do you think it could be that, like, if you acknowledge that that's racist, then you have to acknowledge that you yourself 
have yeah. perpetuated yeah. racism. That, that you that you have that tendency, and then you could say, no, no, it's true. People hide behind the word tradition a lot. Yeah. But I remember something very vivid when this happened so they brought down the flag it was a it was a it was a huge thing instead of doing it in the summer on the lowdown like like just hey we decided to make a switch they made it like a big public statement which is good and bad but it also yeah. it, it it came very abruptly so it brought on a lot of violence a lot of a lot of uh turmoil so i remember something very vividly when they brought down the flag that day it came down officially it was like a, a thing yeah some of the black students were there and the flag came down and they tore it up. Wow. And I'll never forget this. It, it, was, it felt because it felt like I was in a movie. A lot of people were upset that this was happening. I looked at my friends that were doing this and I was so proud. I, I, I almost started crying because I felt like something was happening. Yeah. You know, I felt so proud in that moment to go to this school because yeah. I was a part of that. Seeing that power of tearing this, this yeah. thing. I still look back at that. I still think about that. And it gives me goosebumps. Well, we see this all the time in the in the research that symbols that seem small, they have this power to create what we see as normal, to mm-hmm. create what we see as good, as bad, whatever. You know, they create the story that we're all living in yeah. without even realizing that we're living the story. So I think awareness, like you were talking about, that's a really critical first step. I don't think that's enough. The research doesn't show that that's enough. I'm not saying you're saying yeah, it's yeah, enough. Yeah. The, the two things that it seems can really make a difference is if you're thinking about your own biases, really the only way to get rid of a negative bias is to make your perception of different identities way more complicated, way more complex, right? Like if your only exposure to a certain identity is what you see on TV or one person that you interacted with, of course, you're going to have a stereotype, right? That you're, that's how our brains evolve to just go simple and have these shortcuts. So what we have to do is like immerse ourselves in stories and movies and music and podcasts and conversations ideally and what that does is it allows us to look at people as individuals versus use that quick identity label and you actually see this in the research people spend a lot more time paying attention to someone if they have an identity that the individual has multiple relationships with or has has some personal stake in and Mm -hmm. if you're looking at an identity that you have very little familiarity with you're just going to very quickly jump to whatever those stereotypes are even if you don't mean to you could be the best person in the world but those stereotypes those biases are going to be in there just because that's how we evolved so that's number one is just like immerse yourself give your brain the gift of the complexity and the nuance and the beauty of different cultures and different perspectives that's one and then number two is on the flip side, assume everyone is biased, including yourself. And, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, yeah, absolutely. And then if you have the ability to build anything, like let's say in the workplace, if you are if you have any influence over how hiring is done or in schools, if you have any influence over who's recruited or who is given what grades, I think one of the things that's most powerful is just to go, all of our brains are going to be biased. So how can we make these systems as bias proof as possible? Hmm. Like, can we make the decision criteria more explicit? Can we make sure that no one person is ever making a decision alone? Because we know that bias is much more likely in that case. Can you do things like if you're looking at applications, don't look at the candidate's name? Because we know from research that that leads to bias, both positive and negative. So number one, Immerse yourself in the complexity of different identities. Number two, assume that no one's doing that and that it's not working (laughs) and build your systems to be as bias proof as possible. It's peculiar because when we talk about racism and such, we talk about this country, Mm. but we never talk about globally. Like we never, because I mean, that's a lot of work that we have to do here. 
right. in our in our building, in our neighborhood, in our house. It's we like also a brainwashing, gotta, right? It, it like really is. It's like coming out of uh, like having to see another. Like you said, immersing yourself. I was forced to immerse myself in other cultures when I moved to New York because I was surrounded by different cultures on every block. Yeah. You know, so it was wonderful. But not everyone has that. Not everyone's going to have that. Yeah. Everyone's going to stay in their in their area. You know, so, I mean, all we can do is fix what's in front of us and fix where we are now. Yeah, and it's and, bigger than yeah. this because, country. Because, look, it affects our movies. It affects our film, the, yeah. what we see, what we're allowed to see, so to speak. Like um, What's how, funded. Well, what's funded because, like, you know, you have a, a black male star with a, a white female star will not do well overseas all the time, you know? Sure. So when you're saying, like, you know, build this in your workplace and this filmmakers writers out oh there oh my gosh you're right make your own the work stories you oh my tell, gosh and now you can film pictures anything you put on your website absolutely like yeah. create your own stuff create your own films create your that. own stories and don't worry about the global effect worry about getting those messages so people can love the story and then yeah. see yeah what we want them to yeah. see globally which is one of the reasons i was excited to do this episode is just to talk about like the black psychologists that so rarely are mentioned the things that we're seeing as mainstream today, yeah. that was started in the 1920s yeah, when people amazing. couldn't even drink from the same water fountain. Right, like right. the amount of contribution to society for all people and, is and, just and, unbelievable. And Dr. Sumner, Dr. Prosser, first uh, first black male, first black uh, woman to get their PhDs. Imagine going through the adversity, but knowing that the information you had in your head was important to make right. a difference. You know, because like at any time... You have to believe Absolutely, because at some time they could have been like, you know what, forget this. Instead, they were like, no, I'm sticking with this because I know this subject. Yeah. And right. though there's no one in front of me who's done this before, who looks like me, I can do this. I can yeah. leave the door open behind me. There's this uh, amazing, influential book written by Robert Guthrie, another black psychologist, called Even the Rat Was White. I love that. And <laughs> it so much shines a light on the fact that, like, hey, you're making blackness invisible in mm -hmm. this entire field that's supposed to be about the brain and the yeah. mind, right? And, and until all minds are represented, you're not getting a complete picture. So before we wrap up, I did want to touch on just one other area of research mm -hmm. popularized by black psychologists. Psychologist Joseph White, who was black, pointed out something that I think is so, so important to remember. He, so he recognized that so much of black research focused on deficits because they were mm. kind of comparing white people, black people. And so black people always look like they were lacking because yeah. of the toxic culture that they're forced to be a part of and, and all of the hardships, which is reasonable, right? Like obviously black people have and continue to struggle in so many ways, but he felt that this perpetuated the view of black people being less than mm. white people. So he encouraged researchers to focus on unique strengths and qualities of black people and of each culture in general. And one of the things that few people know is that he is often credited with inspiring positive psychology in general. So, you know, psychology overall focused quite a lot on like deficits, what's sure. wrong with people, what's broken. The kind of psychology you and I spend the majority of our time talking about is positive psychology. Yep. Like what's working? What can we learn from that? Yeah. What are what are the ways that instead of saying life is so hard and here's how bad it is for us, it's like life is so hard, it's so bad for us. And yet people are still thriving. Yeah. And what can we learn from that? Okay, so like if you had to study something uniquely positive about your own culture, what might it be? Smiling and laughing through adversity, like how, what adversity means to my culture and how we push through it, how we laugh, where our humor, humor comes from. Yeah. I actually think that's really powerful because like if I think about your family, 
y'all have gone through some bad stuff and continue to deal with hardship. And you are some of the funniest people I know. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my family too, like some really bad stuff. Yeah. You know, history of so much trauma, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, no offense. (laughs) And through that humor as a coping mechanism. Yeah. Is a really, really so I love one. to look at like humor through adversity or um, storytelling through storytelling, adversity. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember this is this is also something I'd want to study. So I remember, um, you know, you get these microaggressions, and, and I was in class one day, and it was an acting class. And a microaggression, just for kind of shared vocabulary, oh, sure. is like what seems like a small. It's a backhanded compliment, or like it could uh, be like a little leak of a stereotype that someone holds. Yeah, about so. You. So there was this girl in my class and we, we, none of us knew each other. We, we met once a week. So, uh, she was in my class and this is like the second week. So we didn't really know each other. And she came up to me and she's like, so what are you? And, and, and I go, uh, what, what do you mean? I, she was like, well, like, where are you from? And I was like, I'm from Texas. And she goes, no, 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 no. I mean, like, where are you? Where are you from? Where, where, where what are you? And I go, uh, I, I, well, I'm, I'm Mexican, you know, and she was like, oh my God, y'all are such hard workers. Right. And, and she, she meant it, I guess it's a compliment, but it was kind of That's like, the problem with microaggressions. A lot of times people think they're paying someone a compliment, but what they're showing is like, this is how simplistically I yeah, see you. Yeah, this is how I simplistically and like, see you. my people are talented. Your people are hard You're working. hard workers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And then I also used to get, like, because you don't sound it. You know, you don't sound it. I was like, I, I know. You. I used to sound like Cheech when I was a baby, you know, from <laughs> Cheech and Chong. But now I grew out of that. But but my point is, is that I would like to learn also. I'd like to study, like, that hardworking So you want to label. look at the positive stereotype. Yeah, like the, the, the positive, like, because yeah. hardworking isn't a bad thing. And yeah. yet so many people don't want immigrants of my culture coming here, right. you know, taking jobs and everything. But like, we're also known as hard. You want the job done. You want a house built in a day. You know, you get, uh, how, how many floors you want. That's how many Mexicans you need to build the house. You know, like wow. that's what we say. I mean, I'm just saying like, that's you have a, yet to build anything. I have yet to build shit. So, uh, but, but no, but I, I'd want to know like where that comes from. And that's like, I'd want to explore the hardworking thing and why that label is here and seen as a good and bad. Yeah. Whereas like hardworking in America, like, oh, my family built the tunnels. My family built the bridges. Yeah. That's fine. But like my family digs the ditches. My family, you know, labors in the fields. While being seen as less than. Yeah. And, 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 and like, what, what, why is that now? Why and is often that? often being separated from your family and, yeah. you know, being, not speaking the language. Like, you're right. The perseverance. The, the and I, those, those are the two things I'd want to study. I love that. Yeah. What about you? In my culture? Mm-hmm. The, the I guess the, the terrible scrap- cartoons. The terrible cartoons. The dark cartoons. <laughs> so I that... am Vinnie Pooh. <laughs> yeah, so they have a version of Winnie the Pooh, and this is what it sounds like. This is, I, I, I'm this from is a Ukraine, by the way. Yeah, Ukraine. This is a dead-on version Actually, of Winnie the Soviet, Pooh. Actually, Soviet Winnie the, Winnie the Pooh. Tushka, tushka, tushka. Okay. I'm Vinnie Pooh. So that's that's how he sounds. He sounds like a chain-smoking bear. I think, you know, he's had a rougher experience in the former Soviet Union than American <laughs> Just Winnie picture the Pooh. what Winnie the Pooh sounds like here, y'all. And then I'm Vinnie Pooh. So, yes, our cartoons can be a little bit more somber <laughs> in Ukraine and in the former Soviet Union. I would want to study scrappiness, my culture yeah. scrappiness. Because, you know, and also, like, obviously there's so much intersectionality. Like, my family grew up Ukrainian and poor you know and so with that comes this amazing ingenuity and scrappiness and like i think usually i fixate on the negative aspects of that like why does my mother still save so many plastic bags or like why does she always bring us things in a pickle jar even though it's not pickles but (laughs) i think the positive side of that is there is no problem she can't 
yeah. find the supplies somewhere in her home to fix because there's the assumption that like no one's going to help us. We can't buy the solution. We're going to have to come up with the solution ourselves. So I think that scrappiness is something yeah. that would be really cool to study. Like Michael Giver. <laughs> Are you trying to say MacGyver? <laughs> yeah. That's like Michael Giver. Michael Giver. That's awful. I need screwdriver paperclip. <laughs> I built car. Yeah, that's basically something like that. Um, so modern day example of this approach, uh, I'll spotlight one more black researcher named Linda James Myers. And I think her research is so fascinating. So Myers promotes a form of psychology she refers to as optimal psychology, inspired by traditional African beliefs and philosophies. Hmm. Which I think is so cool because it really wasn't until I started reading her writing that I really started to acknowledge that, like, African philosophy has been around since 34,000 BCE. In Western culture, we're mostly just quoting, like, the Greeks and the Romans And our forefathers. And our forefathers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no disrespect to those people. No, but, but like, this goes deeper. Yeah, this is a very limited view of, of the world and of humanity. And one of the things I love about optimal psychology it's called optimal psychology because her focus is like what is optimal and what is suboptimal for humanity to be sustainable basically mm -hmm. and what i love is that it promotes a worldview focus on the interconnectedness of all living things so in psychology especially western psychology the focus is very often on like each independent individual and what's inside their own brain and optimal psychology draws from these african metaphysical traditions that actually go very well with quantum science, which is that we're all inextricably interconnected, which is why Black History is actually also about everyone's future. Yeah, absolutely. That's all I got for today. This was, again, by no means a complete list of influential Black psychologists or research. So if I missed any people or research that you love, listeners, please let us know. And please remember to leave a review, pass on this episode so we can all celebrate Black History Month together. Let's also celebrate our amazing editor, Alyssa Green. Yep. And as always, thank you for listening to Talk, Talk Psych, Psych to Me. Tushka, tushka, tushka. Okay. I'm Vinnie Pooh. <laughs>